Thanksgiving, the national holiday commemorating the first successful harvest season of the grim Protestant pilgrims of New England. Quote, it just doesn't seem right to celebrate the prospering of a Puritan sect that established a Calvinist theocracy in the Massachusetts colony that would mercilessly persecute Catholics, end quote. One reader argued. Such Catholics gathered around their laden Thanksgiving tables, enjoying the company of family and friends, should know a quite consoling fact of American history. The first Thanksgivings on U.S. soil were Catholic. The American history books we studied as youth pretend that colonial American history is exclusively what happened in the 13 New England colonies. This ignores an enormous part of reality, our Catholic history. Little attention is paid to the epic northward advance of Spanish pioneers into the southern tier of states reaching from Florida across Texas and New Mexico to California, today called the Spanish borderlands. The first two Thanksgiving in the present-day United States were actually Catholic. The pilgrims can only claim a third one. A correction, I suggest, should be made in school history books. The first Thanksgivings were celebrated by Spanish explorers, not pilgrims. It is Florida that today proudly claims the first Thanksgiving, with a feast and celebration between the Spanish and the Timkuquan Indians on September 8, 1565, 56 years before the Mayflower landed at Plymouth in 1621. Therefore, St. Augustine, and not Jamestown, is the first permanent European settlement and oldest city in North America. Another correction for many history books. The second Thanksgiving, the subject of this article, was in Texas. On January 26, 1598, a Spanish expedition set out from Mexico with the aim of founding a new kingdom. Three months later, after a long, dangerous trek forging a new trail northward, the now famous El Camino Real, the Royal Road. It crossed the Rio Grande and set up camp south of present-day El Paso, Texas. On April 30th, a mass of thanksgiving was said, and the valiant leader of the expedition, Don Juan de Ante, took formal possession of the new land called New Mexico in the name of the Heavenly Lord God Almighty and the earthly king, Lord King Philip II. Then, after the Mass, the Franciscan priests blessed the food on tables abundant with fish, ducks, and geese, and the 600-strong expedition of soldiers and colonists feasted. The celebration ended with a play enacting scenes of the native Indians hearing the first words of the Catholic faith and receiving the sacrament of baptism. If the new Spain colonies had not set aside their Catholic heritage, perhaps today Florida would be celebrating its Thanksgiving Day on September 8th, while Texas would have its own special feast on April 30th. This would be more in keeping with the healthy spirit of regionalism, which characterizes organic society. Who was Don Juan de Onate? Don Juan de Onate, the Basque leader of the New Mexico expedition, should become a name as familiar as Plymouth founder Captain John Smith or Puritan Governor William Bradford. His exploits, deeds, and spirit are of the sort that inspired the medieval sagas, or today the epic film. Juan de Onate 
was from a noble Basque Spanish family that had become wealthy in the New World in silver mining. As a young man, Don Juan had led campaigns at his own expense in service to the crown to pacify Indians near the northern outposts of Mexico. In his late thirties, he married Isabel de Tolosa, the granddaughter of the conquistador Fernando Cortez, and Isabel Montezuma, the offspring of the late Aztec emperor. In 1595, Oñate was chosen by King Philip II to colonize and explore the provinces of the proposed Kingdom of New Mexico. The terms of the arrangement sound quite unusual to modern ears. Don Onate agreed to equip and arm at his personal expense 200 men to serve as soldiers as well as provide for their families and servants to a total of 500 to 600 persons. He had to purchase sufficient food, clothing, and supplies for the trek north as well as during the period of building the first houses. He also pledged to bring mining and blacksmithing tools, medicine, Indian trade goods, seeds, plows, and all other necessities. In short, he completely subsidized the expenses of a dangerous, uncertain expedition that could easily end in failure. Why did he bother to undertake such a venture? He already had a position of prestige and power in New Spain. He was wealthy, with the potential to become even richer in silver mining had he remained where he was. Instead, he contracted to take on the momentous expenses of equipping and maintaining an expedition of some 600 people and set out on an uncertain, dangerous, and difficult march into an unknown, hostile territory. Why did he go? He went for the adventure to undertake a grand enterprise first, for the glory of God and King, and second, for his personal prestige. First, from his detailed record book, it is clear that Don Onate went for God. His notes show a true desire to expand the boundaries of the religion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He marched under a personal standard of white silk stamped on one side with pictures of Our Lady and St. John the Baptist. Onate's patron saint. On the reverse side was St. James on horseback, carrying a sword. The Spanish monarchy made the defense and propagation of the Catholic faith the supreme aim of the state. In the instructions given to Onate, the crown clearly stated the primary goal of the expedition was to initiate conversion of the, quote, many large settlements of heathen Indians who lived in ignorance of God and our holy Catholic faith so that they might have an orderly and decent Christian life." Quote. Only one expense of the expedition did the crown assume. The king provided the, the patronato real, the royal patronage, agreeing to pay the expenses of the ten priests and friars who accompanied the group both to minister to the men and convert natives. It is a clear demonstration of the great importance the crown gave to the missionary effort. Second, Anate went for his prestige. In return for bearing the expenses of the expedition, he was promised the title of governor, as well as the supreme military rank of captain general with civil and criminal jurisdiction over the kingdom of New Mexico. These titles were granted for life with privilege of passing them on to his heirs. The crown also agreed to award all Anate's men by making them nobles, 
Hildgados, after five years' residence in New Mexico. So Donanate and his expedition went forth in January of 1598 under the symbol of cross and the authority of the crown. It has been said that the Middle Ages drew its last breath in these captains and conquistadors of the New World. I think that is very true. Certainly the aims, spirit, attitudes, and religion of the Spanish explorers could not have been more different from those of the Puritans who, motivated by self-interest, landed at Plymouth Rock to make a small, comfortable life for themselves and their families, with no thought of the spiritual welfare of the Indians, no dreams of heroism, glory, or fame. This clear difference in spirit and mentality makes the colonial Catholic Spaniards a better model for Americans than the Puritans. The Expedition Through the Desert After three long years of extremely costly delays, Don Onate, age 43, set out from Santa Barbara, the most northern Spanish outpost in Mexico, on January 26, 1598. He aimed to establish a short, direct route due northward through 200 miles of the Chihuahuan Desert, a trail would later become part of the famous El Camino Real. The sprawling train he led was reported to spread out for three miles in length. It was a formidable sight, some 500 to 600 men, 175 of them soldiers, many of them in armor, 83 ox carts, 26 wagons and carriages, and over 7,000 head of livestock. The first significant obstacle Don Onate faced was not the desert, but the unseasonable high waters of the Conchos River, making a crossing appear impossible. Don Onate refused to halt or turn back. Instead, he made a rallying call. Quote, Come, noble soldiers, knights of Christ, here is presented the first opportunity for you to show your mettle and courage to prove that you are deserving of the glories in store for you. Then he ordered up his horse and without pause plunged into the foaming torrent and reached shore. His exploit set the example and the crossing was made. Only the sheep were left behind on the south bank, unable to swim because the weight of their wool when soaked with water would pull them under. Don Juan ordered the wooden wheels removed from the carts, anchored them in pairs to rafts, and strung them in a line over the water. The bleeding sheep crossed the conchos on them, and the expedition continued. By early March, Onante's expedition had reached the treacherous Chihuahuan Desert. Some days into the desert journey, they were desperately in need of water. Unexpectedly, they came to a small stream which they named the Rio Sacramento, because it was found on Holy Thursday, the Feast of the Institution of the Blessed Sacrament. The next day, Don Onate ordered a halt and a temporary chapel was erected for Easter Mass. They named the site Enchiar de la Resurrección, Place of the Resurrection. The men passed the night in penance and prayer. Don Onate also bared his back to take the discipline and atonement of sins a common practice among the Spanish faithful during Holy Week. The long march continued, and water grew scarcer. On April 1st, after a night-long vigil of prayer, Don Onate made this entry in his logbook, quote, God succored us with a downpour, so heavy that very large pools formed. Therefore, we named this place Socorro del Cielo, aid from heaven, end quote. This was how the journey progressed, 
At every crucial moment, an aid from heaven came. For, for the soldiers and colonists, those aids were miracles from God, who was blessing their venture. To pay him some small thanks, they gave the streams that they found, the sites where they rested, holy names that glorified God and his saints. Finally, on April 21, 1598, the exhausted expedition reached the banks of the Rio Grande. For the last five days of the march, the expedition had run out of both food and water, and the colonists had suffered a mind-numbing thirst. Don Onate, seeing the extreme fatigue on the faces of the people, proclaimed a week's rest on the river bank as scouts searched for a suitable place to ford the river and cross into New Mexico, what is the present day El Paso, Texas. Taking Possession and the First Thanksgiving Onate ordered a temporary church to be constructed with a nave large enough to hold the entire camp. Under those boughs, on April 30, 1598, the feast day of the Ascension of Our Lord, the Te Deum was sung, and the Franciscans celebrated a solemn high mass, the first Thanksgiving celebration in our lands. The moment had arrived for La Toma, the formal ceremony of taking possession of new land, a ritual that was both secular and religious in nature. It was a triumphant moment for Don Onate and his Spanish priests, soldiers, and colonists, who had suffered much and seen their expedition often at the point of perishing. The army drew up in formation on horseback, each man in polished armor. Don Onate stepped forward to read the official proclamation. Quote, in the name of the Most Holy Trinity, I take possession of this whole land this April 30th, 1598, in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ on this day of the ascension of our Lord. End quote. To fanfare of trumpets and volleys of musket shots, Onate signed and sealed the official act with a flourish, and the Holy Cross and the Royal Standard were both raised in the camp, completing the legal requirements of La Toma. With that, the Kingdom of New Mexico came into being at midday on April 30, 1598. The colonists went on to celebrate the first Thanksgiving with a grand feast of fish, many cranes, ducks, and geese. The rest of the day passed with song, foot races, and other competitive games. In the evening, all enjoyed a play written by one of Onate's captains, Marcos Farfan, which enacted happy scenes of the Franciscan missionaries entering the country, the Indians kneeling to receive them and asking to be received into the holy faith. This is a description of that glorious festivity which represents, I am convinced, the plan of God for those lands that today compromise our country. Since the last Thursday of November is a random date to commemorate Thanksgiving, I propose that Catholics in Texas commemorate this day the conquest of Don Onate and the Franciscan priests, rather than that bitter harvest of the Puritans. I am sure that this will glorify our Lord Jesus Christ and gain his blessing for our future. Amen. And if only our country had become Catholic. Perhaps we wouldn't be in the Protestant, Masonic, Judeo-Masonic mess that we are right now. And now I want to go on to the next article, which was entitled Reality and Myth Regarding Thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving as we know it today bears little resemblance to the supposed first Thanksgiving in 1621 at Plymouth. The festival with its deep Protestant roots is once shaped by myths, not real history, unlike Catholic feast days and holy days, firmly grounded in the events of the lives of our Lord, Our Lady, and the saints. In fact, until the 19th century, Thanksgiving was strictly a Puritan event without any influence on the rest of the American people, commemorated as a harvest day, fast, and thanksgiving ceremony. Further, that quote-unquote day was celebrated spottily only in the New England states, in some regions and not others, and never on a fixed date. Some celebrated as early as October, others as late as January. And some years in its earliest history, if the harvest was not good or the weather inclement, it was simply ignored. To fix an annual commemoratory feast, well, that would have just been too Catholic for Puritan tastes. Now, there is the really surprising data. Until the mid-19th century, the event of a feast shared by the first Puritans with the Wapakono Indians in October of 1621 was completely unknown. It was a New Hampshire Episcopalian woman, Sarah Hale, editor of the popular Gaudy's Ladies magazine, who came across a Puritan diary revealing the existence of the gathering pilgrims and Indians in 1621. She thought to take advantage of that forgotten commemoration in order to shape it into an American feast day. In 1845, she launched her quote-unquote crusade to make a Thanksgiving national feast stumping relentlessly for the festival in her popular and influential magazine and barnstorming politicians, preachers, and presidents. In Gaudi's pages, the pilgrims with their buckled hats, the feather-banded Indians, and the turkey and pumpkin made their first appearance, along with the sentimental short stories trumpeting New England Protestant values of simplicity, economy, and patriotism. Sarah Hale was finally successful when Lincoln established Thanksgiving as a national holiday in 1863 as one means to help mend the broken North and South relationship. It would be a national holiday of food and family values, whose central point would be a meal and not a religious covenant. Instead of being turned toward heaven, in fact, the day's focus became home, family, and nation, that is, America in its quote-unquote providential role as Republic Builder, America as the melting pot that took in all peoples and integrated them into the democratic ideal. Hale envisioned Thanksgiving as one way to bring Americans together, much the same way that Protestant women later promoted the Pledge of Allegiance to foster patriotism and national unity, which is another story. Lincoln also established its official date as the final Thursday in November. Needless to say, the South was loath to adopt any law coming from the hated Lincoln, and it would take many years for the holiday to achieve its goal or begin to resemble the distinctly American secular holiday we know today. Immigrant Catholics who still observed the Catholic feasts and holy days were also reluctant to embrace the strictly secular feast which they considered Protestant. It was, Car it was Cardinal of Baltimore, James Gibbons, the great champion of Americanism and religious liberty, who was the first prelate to make public efforts to integrate Catholics into the Protestant festival. In 1888, 
he published in his archdiocesan paper a circular where he called on his priests to recite this ecumenical prayer at the close of Mass on Thanksgiving Day, directing its observance. Quote, the faithful of the archdiocese, having in common with our fellow citizens deep cause for gratitude to the giver of every good and perfect gift, will, we feel confident, be equally desirous of evincing their spirit of thanksgiving. End quote. This won him points with the New York Herald, who praised him highly for the act, and with President Cleveland. But, if the Cardinal's gesture won him admiration from Protestant quarters, it met with strong protest from many fellow prelates, especially those in the South. Bishop Benjamin J. Keeley of Savannah, Georgia, complained publicly that Gibbons had, quote, out-herited Herod by inducing Catholics to recognize, quote, the damnably puritanical substitute for Christmas, end quote. It would take many years after the more generalized secularization and commercialization of Thanksgiving that occurred in the post-World War I era before Catholics as a body would accept the secular holiday. In 1910, the Catholic Encyclopedia makes this revealing remark, quote, Catholic recognition of the day by special religious features has only been of comparatively recent date and not as yet of official general custom, end quote. So what is the real history of the real quote-unquote first Thanksgiving? Summarizing, it could be hardly more different from the story of pilgrims and Indians meeting in ecumenical joy at a feast of fellowship, the fable we know today. The Plymouth pilgrims followed their English counterparts who despised the many Catholic holy days and feast days. But they went a step further, thinking the Church of England beyond reform because it was still too Roman. According to them, all these popish inventions involved too much ceremony, too much celebration, and were unsupported by scriptures. So, the Puritans reduced the holy days and feast days to one, the Sabbath. These first pilgrims, who landed on American soil, hated holy days and festivities so much that they even abolished Christmas and Easter. A custom developed among the pilgrims, however, that of declaring special days of thanksgiving in response to God's providence. The day of thanksgiving was preceded by a day of fast. The majority of the second day was spent in their temple houses praying, singing, and scripture reading. Feasting played little and often no role in the early pilgrim thanksgivings. The Massachusetts pilgrims of Plymouth did not view the 1621 feasts celebrated between the, the Wampanoag Indians and the pilgrims as a quote-unquote quote, quote first Thanksgiving. They certainly had no intention of inaugurating an annual holiday. This fast and Thanksgiving day that Governor Bradford called to commemorate the year's good harvest was, like all others, to note the passing of one providential moment, the good harvest of that particular autumn. When George Washington issued an ad hoc proclamation of a national day of Thanksgiving, he did so in the Calvinist spirit. The Continental Congress proclaimed November 1, 1777, as a nationwide day for fasting, prayer, and thanksgiving for the English defeat at Saratoga that ensured a French alliance with the newly born republic. John Adams and James Madison issued similar proclamations for other quote-unquote providential events. 
The Thanksgiving we know today was invented and reinvented several times, but has little to do, in fact, with those original pilgrims, Indians, or turkey dinner. In my opinion, knowing the history of Thanksgiving strengthens the argument for celebrating the Catholic Thanksgivings of St. Augustine, Florida, and El Paso, Texas. It makes more sense for Catholics to honor the first Masses said on Catholic soil than the original Protestant fast and Thanksgiving Day that commemorated the pilgrims' quote-unquote covenant with the Lord. Still, we can't commemorate it on the fourth Thursday of November or any other day, joining together with family and friends to thank God for our Catholic past and ask Him to take up again the original plan for our nation, that it may rightly celebrate the reign of Christ and Our Lady in all its festivals and actions. Amen. May the United States of America soon convert to the traditional Catholic faith and crush the head of Judeo Freemasonry, that we may be delivered by this unjust, immoral, and illegitimate government that seeks to destroy us, to destroy both our faith, our hope, and our lives.